0: Well, good morning. Uh, did you guys know that this is the, the first official weekend of the fall? Uh, and some of you may know that just from looking at a calendar. Uh, others of you may have been able to to figure that out by looking at uh, a couple other signs uh, in the world around us. Uh, the most obvious sign, at least uh, to me and some others, is probably that football season has begun. Uh, others may have noticed that the, the leaves are beginning to turn, uh, right now, which is both sad and exciting. Of like, okay, the summer's officially over. Fall is coming. Uh, and we see that in the brilliant uh, colors that the, the trees will turn in the, in the next few weeks, uh, which I personally love. But then also, uh, in the fall season, People break out their flannel. You guys ever notice that? They start to, they, okay, it's, it's time to bring out those flannels. Uh, or I wore my, my vest this morning. That's also a big thing. And then uh, maybe I'm the only one that does this because of my lack of hair. But I start to wear beanies uh, because my head gets really cold uh, in the the morning. Uh, as the, the weather turns, it's colder and colder in the morning. And there's also... Uh, this explosion of pumpkin spice, uh, flavoring just kind of everywhere, whether it's candles or a latte, uh, a pumpkin spice everything, uh, in the fall season. Uh, but then also here, more so than, uh, where I'm originally from in Southern California, uh, we see farmers beginning to harvest the crops that they have planted in the spring. Uh, they are cutting and gathering, uh, the, the wheat, the hay, uh the corn uh the sugar beets and other crops uh they have uh, planted in this area they are they are cutting them and harvesting them uh and they are getting ready to take those and, and sell them and uh make some money on that uh and that's a unique thing here uh in the, the Idaho area of just yeah the, it's harvest time uh and what we're going to look at today is uh a different type of harvest uh what Jesus is going to teach his disciples about uh here in John chapter 4 is not going to be a a physical harvest, but it is a uh, a spiritual harvest, uh, and this is important for us uh, to know and to, to learn about to study, because we are a part of this harvest. Uh, and some of you may not remember signing up to to work in a harvest when you uh, agreed to to follow Christ in faith. Anyone remember signing up for that? I agreed to, to labor for the harvest, uh, but but that was part of the fine print, uh, as we're going to see here. Today, and if you are a believer, you are a part of this spiritual harvest that Jesus is going to teach His disciples about in two ways. First, uh, if you are a believer, you are part of the crop of that harvest. Uh, you are one who has been uh, planted by Christ, and now, uh, in coming to faith, you have uh, borne fruit, uh, and when the harvest comes, you will uh, be captured and taken away uh, with Christ uh, for all of eternity. Uh, so we are a part of the crop of the harvest if we have placed our faith and our trust in Christ. Uh, but then in another sense, we are also laborers uh working in that harvest uh and that is what we will see uh this morning in in John chapter 4 now this, before we get to John chapter 4 there's many other places in the gospels uh where Jesus speaks of this spiritual harvest uh most notably in Matthew chapter 13 and he's speaking about the parables of the kingdom which are intended to lay out uh what is going to take place uh from that point in time where Jesus uh was rejected by uh, the, the leaders of Israel uh, until he comes with the second uh, coming uh, in Matthew, chapter 13, verses one through nine uh, famous parable, the parable of the soils uh, where Jesus speaks of uh, the, the kingdom of heaven being like somebody planting seeds or sow or went out to sow and he sowed uh, and seeds fell on different types of soil and bore different types of fruit or with different results. Another parable uh, regarding a harvest would be the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 uh, verses 24 to 30, illustrating that in the the church age, there will be some who believe in and come to faith in Christ. But then uh, the evil one, Satan, uh, goes into the church uh, and plants tares so that in the church you have believers and unbelievers during this church age. Uh, so we're called to to be wise and understand that reality. Uh, but then also uh, in Mark, chapter four, verses twenty six to twenty nine, uh, the parable of uh, the farmer. Uh, and I'll read this to you, uh, it says, and he said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. And the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Later on in the gospels in, in Luke uh, chapter 10 and in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus uh, tells his disciples that they should pray for laborers uh, for the harvest. He says the harvest is come and the laborers are few. And he, he tells his disciples to pray for laborers, and then guess who he sends out? Those that he told, just told to pray for, hey, pray for laborers, and because it's going to be you. Uh, that, that's the emphasis there. Uh, and that's, in essence, what he also calls us to do. To pray for more laborers, but also then to fold ourselves into the labor. And then in Revelation 14, verse 15, we see the great harvest of souls taking place. It says and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, says put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. There there is a spiritual harvest of souls that is taking place uh, both now and in the future. Uh, And that's what we see in in those verses that we we looked at briefly right now. Now, speak of it as a a future and a present reality. But what we're going to see in John chapter 4 as we read this morning is the emphasis upon the here and the now. If you have your Bibles uh, open, John chapter 4, begin reading with me in verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, in previous weeks, we've looked at the conversation between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman that precedes uh, these verses. And uh, we've seen uh, their interaction and how uh, the woman, uh, after Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ that uh, they have been waiting for, uh, she drops her bucket and she goes back into the town of Sychar to tell the other villagers uh, about her conversation and her interaction with Jesus. Uh, And what we come to this morning is this interlude between uh the samaritans hearing about jesus from the woman and they're coming to him uh later on beginning uh in uh verses uh 39 through 42 uh so this is this interlude where the samaritan woman has left and it's just jesus and his disciples there at this well uh jacob's well about uh half a mile south of the town of sychar uh in the the region of samaria uh and uh as uh we will see that this Jesus is going to speak with and, and instruct his disciples about what is it that truly sustains him. Now, and then he's going to exhort them about this spiritual harvest that. It, ultimately sustains him that he's going to call them to uh, begin to participate in. And this spiritual harvest begins with Jesus' ministry. It is inaugurated by what, uh, by his coming uh, and ushering in a new way of salvation. And the spiritual harvest that Jesus is going to speak about here, uh, it began in the first century and it has continued throughout the church age and is still ongoing today. Now, this spiritual harvest is still taking place, and we are charged to enter into the work of those who have gone before us. We are called to continue the work that they have begun, and indeed, we will harvest what they have planted. But you may be asking yourself, why is it that I should step into such an endeavor? You know, I'm not a farmer or the son of a farmer. Uh, I do have some distant relatives that were farmers. Uh, but but I've never spent a day on a farm. Uh, but I know that it's hard work. So you may be saying, well, why is it that I should step into this? Why? Uh, Jesus calls it labor. That sounds hard. Uh, why do I want to step into that? Why do I want to volunteer for such work? What we're going to see this morning in these verses are, are three certainties about this spiritual harvest, three certainties that when we understand them, when we become convinced that they are true, they will help to motivate us in in explaining why we need to join with Christ, with all of those who have gone before us in working, striving to participate and bring about a harvest of souls. Uh, And of these three certainties, the first one that we're going to see is in verses 31 to 34. And this first certainty is that satisfaction comes from laboring in this spiritual harvest. That's what we must be convinced of, that satisfaction comes from laboring in this spiritual harvest. And as we come to uh, the beginning of this section, we see the disciples who are urging Jesus to eat. They say, hey, Rabbi, you must take and eat. Uh, You you have to eat something. They went into the the town to purchase food uh, for their party, and now they've returned with the food, and they say, hey, Rabbi, here, we got this food for you. Why don't you eat it? Uh, And he says, hey, I have food that you don't even know about. Uh, And this is confusing to them because they're like, why did you send us in? Uh, Why did you make us go into the town to get food? And then they're also confused because they're asking one another and saying... Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. What is he talking about? What food is Jesus speaking about? And the reason that they are confused is because they are once again trying to interpret what Jesus is saying only materialistically. Uh, they don't understand that Jesus is speaking uh, metaphorically. He's speaking spiritually. They only have this grid of uh, of strict literalism. And they're like, what are you talking about? And this is a recurring theme in John's Gospel that we have seen uh, so far. Uh, so many people are confused by what Jesus says because they don't understand uh, what he is truly teaching. Uh, but Jesus is going to explain what it is that is sustaining him, what his food is, his source of nourishment. His source of satisfaction. It's not a physical earthly bread. But if you look at verse 34 with me, Jesus explains to the disciples what his food is. He says, my food is to do, number one, the will of him who sent me. And then secondly, to accomplish his work. That is what sustains Jesus. That is what keeps him going. That is where he finds his his satisfaction and his nourishment in obeying and doing what God has sent him to do. Now, to fulfill the calling for which he was sent into the world. And he's, he's finding his satisfaction in that rather than in physical nourishment. Uh, And this lesson that Jesus is giving to his disciples here and that he's living out before us is really the lesson that God intended the the first generation of Israel to learn back in the wilderness. Uh, This should bring to mind this story and this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. This should bring to mind the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8 where uh, God speaks or speaking through Moses tells the first generation of Israel or the second generation of Israel what they should have learned. Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 3 say, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and feed you with manna and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord the Israelites were were called and allowed to to be hungry so that they would learn what to be dependent upon the Lord and to find their satisfaction not just in the bread that God provides but in the person of God and what he who he is and what he is able to accomplish uh, and what we are called to to find here what Jesus is laying out here is that number one he finds his source of nourishment in his relationship with the lord and number two that that is the deepest source of satisfaction that he finds and that we are called to find as well we are to be dependent upon the lord and trust that he is the greatest satisfaction that we could ever experience in life and god uses this picture of food in deuteronomy because it brings clarity to what he's teaching because when we are hungry what do we do what do we reach for yeah, we, we reach for something to satisfy us, and usually it's food. Uh, and if you were just to, to run in your own imagination, in your own mind, you probably have routines uh, in, in your day uh, where you come home or you wake up and you go to a certain cupboard or a certain uh, place in the refrigerator and you have your favorite snack, probably. Right? You, you have your, your go-to food uh, that you find to be of great Comfort and satisfaction to your physical body. Uh, and, uh, that, that's normal and that's natural. Uh, and, uh, but here's the, the key principle to that. Uh, of we, we turn to those foods because we believe that they will satisfy us. You don't turn to food that you don't think is going to satisfy you. Uh, we, we turn to those things that were like, Hey, this is going to, to bring me comfort and joy as I consume it. And this principle of, we always make our decisions based upon what we believe will satisfy us the most. And some of you might object to that rule that I just explained. Cause you're like, sometimes I really want a burger and fries or maybe pizza. We're talking about a pizza, uh, in equipping hour. Uh, that's my go-to food as well. Like, man, give me, give me some good pizza, uh, and sometimes we want that pizza, we want that burger and fries, but what do we end up ordering like a salad right you 're like man w- w- and which one would we rather have, and which one would we enjoy more? Probably that burger and fries or that salad but but here 's the key is that example still proves my point that we always will make decisions based upon our strongest desires because the reason that you choose the salad over the really good pizza with all the cheese and pepperoni and and all of the goodness and in all of its glory. The reason you choose the salad instead of something better is because you value the benefit of that salad in the long term. You you value eating healthy. You value uh, the long-term health benefits of eating that salad over the immediate gratification of consuming that pizza. Does that make sense? Uh, So you're still making a decision based upon what you believe will satisfy you most Uh, but here's where where this comes into play rather than living our lives in a way that uh, we are going to get an immediate gratification we're going to satisfy our desires we're going to go eat that that pizza and the burger we are called to find our satisfaction a greater satisfaction than any food can provide we we find that in the person of god We find that in Jesus Christ. We find that in obeying His will. That's what Jesus is saying here. That that His nourishment, His satisfaction comes from obeying God and pleasing Him. That is what we are called to see and understand. Uh, And what we have to be convinced of, what we have to be certain is true, that the deepest satisfaction that we can find in life comes through our relationship with God, not through anything else in this life. And Jesus' mission, the work that he was sent to, to fulfill, the task that he was given by God the Father, uh, was seen back in John chapter 3, uh, beginning of verse 14. Says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the mission that God sent His Son to accomplish. To go and to die on the cross. So that all who believe in Christ, all who look to Him in faith, understanding our own inability to save ourselves, that all who look to Jesus in faith would be forgiven. That we would receive eternal life. That is uh, the food, the nourishment that satisfies Jesus accomplishing that mission that God sent him for that God sent his son to save and the spiritual harvest of souls through the cross is the will of God and the work Jesus was sent to accomplish so as Jesus comes to this this town of Sychar and he is speaking to this Samaritan woman uh, and showing her her desperate need for a savior and then presenting himself as the savior that she is to believe in that is more satisfying to him than any food that he could consume and that is what we are also called to believe and embrace of that pursuit of god and that pursuit of obeying him is what will be most satisfying to us Uh, and the question then is are we convinced of that Do we believe that the greatest satisfaction that we could ever experience in life comes from enjoying God, from pursuing Him? Or are we convinced that uh, everything else in life, the the little things, or detrimental to our own soul, are we wrongly believing that the sins that we pursue will satisfy us? And again, we've talked about this, those sins will satisfy us for a time, but while they are satisfying us, what else are they doing? They are enslaving us. Because when we, when we have sinful desires and we sin to try and satisfy those desires, we just have a greater desire for what? For sin. We just want more sin and then this cycle continues and it grows and grows. But we are called to, to change our affections, to, to reorient our hearts and our minds so that we look and see the value of Christ, the value of pursuing him, of obeying him, uh, of living according to God's will rather than our own. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. What we are called to uh, is to enjoy God. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Uh, in 1 in Peter chapter 5, Peter is speaking to the elders. He says, uh, as you're going to shepherd people don 't do this under compulsion, but do it uh, willingly, as God would have you do in essence, do it because you know that this is what will be most satisfying in Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven, as God uh, through the Apostle Paul speaks about what he desires in our giving, not that we give grudgingly, but what does He want us to do in our giving? He wants us to experience joy in our giving, Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven says each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver we are called to find our joy our pleasure our satisfaction in jesus and john piper who's in essence based his whole ministry on this concept of finding all of our satisfaction in christ says this that saving faith at its root means being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. That is the nature and the root of saving faith. And again, it's one of those things that we kind of know intellectually. That, like, yes, I need to look to Christ. I need, I need to be satisfied in Him. Oftentimes, uh, we are very familiar with the Lord's Prayer Matthew chapter 6. Part of that prayer is, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? We, we pray that, but do we really mean that? Is that really the desire of our heart where we say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm coming to you and all of my dreams, all my hopes, all my desires, all my wants, I am lifting those up to you. I'm handing them over to you and Lord, I want your will to be accomplished in my life rather than what I want. And... So do we want that? And are we convinced that that is what will be most satisfying to us? Oftentimes we'll say, okay, God, I'll give this to you. And then we, we walk away like three steps. And then we run back and we snatch it back off of the altar that we just laid it on and say, okay, God, I'm taking this back. Because I really like it. And I really find it to be satisfying. And we really struggle to give things over to God. We really struggle to entrust ourselves to Him and to believe that His ways are most satisfying, that His ways are best. But what would it look like if we, were, if we were to be convinced that our greatest and deepest satisfaction in life was found in obeying God and trying to, to do His will rather than our own? Well, it may sound like we would rejoice in our trials. We would be patient when inconvenienced. We would seek to honor the lord in conflict right usually in conflict what do we what do we focus upon i just want them to see that i'm right and i want them to acknowledge that and say that and then we'll be done that that's so easy right uh, but what about if in conflict our greatest concern was not being right but was to honor the lord rather than pushing 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 for what i want suddenly that conflict disappears right would also look like us sacrificing our own desires and dreams, considering others to be more important than ourselves. Philippians 2. The greatest example of that is Jesus Christ himself. We would also be willing to risk the possibility of rejection or embarrassment, ridicule, or other consequences in order to speak to others about Jesus. Because that's what this is all about here. Jesus found his satisfaction in sharing the gospel, uh, in, in pointing somebody else uh, to him as Savior. And if we were to, to really be honest with ourselves, do we see evangelism? Do we see spiritual conversations where we get to, to point others to Jesus as nourishing to our souls, or do we find it terrifying? Right? Uh, Most of us would would agree with that latter assessment. But Jesus says, no, this is one of the greatest joys and the the most deepest satisfaction that we uh, could ever find in life is proclaiming who God is and what He has done. We have been commanded to proclaim a message of peace and reconciliation from a loving God to a hostile world. And where the satisfaction comes... Who are really honest, the satisfaction doesn't necessarily come from sharing that message and then being ridiculed and rejected. The satisfaction comes in knowing that, hey, I'm doing this in obedience and in love to my Lord. And there will be some who do reject. There will be some who do scoff. But what can we also rest assured of? That as we go and share, there will also be some who respond. There will also be some who, who say, wow, thank you so much for sharing this message with me. And that truly is one of the greatest and deepest satisfactions in life. To to come and share the gospel with somebody and to see them, then place their faith and trust to see a life transformed, addictions broken, enslavements freed. There is no greater joy. There is no greater satisfaction than seeing that. But that only comes if we are being willing to do that. We are willing to say, God, I am certain that even though I'm, I'm fearful and nervous and scared of what might happen, I, I'm going to trust that when you say that this is where I can find a, a great satisfaction, that you, you're speaking the truth. And I'm going to step out in obedience to that and share the gospel. We must believe, we must be certain that satisfaction comes from laboring in this spiritual harvest. Of laboring, of praying, of, of sharing, of caring, of going and giving the gospel to others that need to hear it. We must be certain that there is a deep and profound satisfaction that will come from that. If we're not convinced of that, we'll, we'll never take any steps towards laboring. We'll never have any desire to participate in this grand spiritual harvest during the church age. We must begin there, being certain that satisfaction is to be found in the spiritual harvest and then secondly certainty number two that we find in verses 35 and 36 is that urgency drives us to work in this spiritual harvest as we look back at those uh, verses jesus speaking to the disciples says do you not say that there are yet four months then comes the harvest look I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Uh, And Jesus uh, is going to quote a saying of his time, that that, there are yet four months that then comes, the harvest, and what he's speaking about here, in the Jewish agricultural calendar, there were six periods of two months in the in the farming cycle of the year. Now, those six periods were seed time and then winter, spring, harvest, summer, and then the time of extreme heat. I like our four: winter, uh, spring, summer, summer, and fall. Uh, I just want to avoid that extreme heat period. Uh, but uh, that, those are the, the six two-month periods uh, that they had in Israel. Uh, and the saying that he quotes here reflects this, the idea that there are four months between the end of the seed time and the beginning of the harvest. Uh, and so during those four months, uh, what this saying points to is that there's really nothing that you can do to speed up the harvest. Like what you plant, you just kind of sit back and watch it grow. You can't expedite that process uh, through human efforts. Uh, but but Jesus is, is pointing to this saying to make a contrast. He says, hey, that you're familiar with this saying that, hey, once you plant, now it's just a waiting game for four months. But but things are different now because he says, he quotes this saying, and then he says in verse uh, 35, in the middle of it, he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And what Jesus is trying to draw the disciples' attention to is uh, kind of at the end of, uh, see, at the end of verse... Uh, or verse 30, uh, if we look backwards, uh, we see, we saw the, the woman going into the town, and then we're, we're kind of left in verse 30 of they, the townspeople, went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, and that sets the stage for what Jesus is saying here, as he's telling the disciples, hey, look, lift up your eyes and see. Uh, and what he's pointing to when he says the fields are white for harvest is, uh, what the disciples would have looked up and seen are the townspeople of Sychar walking towards them. Remember, it's about a half-mile walk. So they would see all of these townspeople walking towards them, and the people would probably be dressed in white. And this white would have stood out starkly from the green hills in the background. Uh, And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, the fields are white for harvest. He's pointing and saying, look, the harvest is coming to us right now. This spiritual harvest, these souls are coming to us because they want to see and hear more about Jesus, whom the Samaritan woman spoke about. And that's what he is saying. Look, the harvest is ready to be reaped. We don't have to wait four months. The, the seed of faith that Jesus just planted in the Samaritan woman is about to be harvested. And it's going to be an abundant crop. That is what he's saying. You don't have to wait any longer. And then Jesus adds urgency to his teaching in verse 36. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. So at this point in time in in, in an agricultural economy, uh, there would be day laborers who worked on a farm and they would be paid at the end of each day based upon the work for that day. So when Jesus is saying that the laborers, uh, the one who is uh, harvesting, the one who reaps is receiving wages, means that, hey, he's already been working. The, The harvest is already active and going. Uh, And he's already being paid, and he's already harvesting a crop uh, of eternal fruit, a fruit that leads to eternal life. Now, there's an eternal harvest as a result of this uh, spiritual harvest that's being spoken of. And the result of this harvest, this eternal harvest, is that both the one who reaps and the one who is harvesting, they rejoice together at the crop. Because, again, lives are saved. Lives are transformed in all of this. And I don't, I don't know about uh, you. I'll just speak from my own experience. I don't know if it happens to anybody else. Um, so you may have to use your imagination. But sometimes I run late to things. Okay. Uh, sometimes uh, when I'm running late to uh, a meeting uh, or an event or a dinner uh, or a, a movie or, or anything else, uh, when I'm running late, I begin to feel anxious. Right? I begin to feel this urgency because wherever I was supposed to be, it may start without me, and because I don't want to miss it, I, oh, I have to get there. I, I have this this urgency in my in my heart because, uh, especially when it is an important event and it has already begun. Again, I don't know how you feel, but I feel inwardly this this anxiety and this urgency to get there. And hypothetically speaking, if you were ever late for something. You would feel that need to act quickly. And that is what Jesus is, is trying to, to portray to his disciples here. He's trying to instill within them a sense of urgency by telling them, hey, the harvest has already begun. They should kind of have this sense of urgency within them of, oh, then I'm running late. Th- then I'm behind on this. I-, I need to catch up. I need to-, to begin to step into this labor that I am behind on. And the fact that something has already begun naturally creates an urgency for us to act. And in the farming world, if a farmer is is slow or late to act, what might happen? Might lose his crop. Uh, a late harvest is a spoiled crop, uh, and, that, and that's the urgency here. The, the harvest has begun, and we don't know when it will end. Right. We, we don't know when Christ is going to return and the harvest is going to be uh, gathered in and taken up to be with him in heaven. We don't know when that's going to be, but we do know the harvest has begun. And so now we are called to labor urgently to do that, to work in this spiritual harvest of pouring into souls. And we must feel an urgency to do God's will, to act in faith and obedience concerning all that he has commanded us to do. Being convinced that that is what is most satisfying in life. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, speaking to his own congregation, his own church, had these very challenging words. He says, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and, and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you, if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored, for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. And a dyspeptic, I had to look it up, so I'll explain it to you. Uh, Is somebody who suffers indigestion, uh, so all feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. It says, be idle, careless with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? He says, let us have practical Christianity. Again, all that Spurgeon said there is operating on the assumption that what will be most satisfying in life is not looking inwardly and then just enjoying our own pursuits, but fulfilling all of the work that God has commanded for us to do. And everything that he mentioned there commands in Scripture. See, Jesus had a very specific calling to, to come, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross and endure the wrath of God for sinners, and then to raise raise it from the dead on the third day. It's a very specific calling for Christ. But what is it that we are called to do? How do we know what that is? Well, we have our, our marching orders here in Scripture. That is what we are called to believe and to obey. That if you're wondering, what, what is my calling, Lord? What is it you want me to go and do We read and study the Scriptures and seek to obey them. And again, we find our satisfaction in knowing God's person through His Word and then in obeying God's Word as well. And we need to feel an urgency to labor in this ongoing harvest, to pray for others, to see who Jesus is, and to see Him in light of all that He has done on their behalf, to go and to care for them, showing them the love of Christ, and then speaking the gospel to them. There was a a great uh, 4th and 5th century uh, preacher uh, named John Christostom. His his nickname was John the Golden Mouth, Uh, an amazing uh, preacher. Uh, And what he said, speaking of evangelism, he says, There is nothing colder than a Christian who does not work for the salvation of others. We must take that to heart. And I fear that some of us have grown cold in this area. We've we've fallen into our routine. But we've fallen into the habits of comfort in life. Now we are very comfortable in those habits. Right? We have our our. We get home from work. I do this. I do this. I wake up in the morning. I do this. I do this. Uh, and we, we have forgotten that there exists a spiritual harvest going on and taking place right now. Well, we have grown cold to that fact. And we must have eyes to see that harvest before us. So I have to ask, do you see that harvest? Do you have eyes to see those around you in need of knowing Christ? Do you have compassion for the souls around you? Does it break your heart to see those around you wandering and living their own life, going their own direction uh, and and experiencing all of the, the discomfort, all of the consequences of trying to live their best life now? Does that weigh upon you? Do you feel the urgency of the moment? But I think even more fundamental than those questions is do you see yourself as a laborer in that harvest? Have you embraced that calling, that identity to be one who goes and shares and speaks of Christ? And if you don't, that is where we, we first must begin to see ourselves as laborers, as ambassadors for Christ. Representing him, going and, and sharing that message of reconciliation to a hostile world. But the urgency of this harvest doesn't necessarily mean that we, that we run around fretfully uh, proclaiming that the end is near. You know, that's not necessarily what I mean uh, when I say that there is an urgency to, to this spiritual harvest. What I mean is there needs to be a mindfulness on our part. Uh, there needs to be an intentionality. That we are going to, to labor, that we are going to, to work uh, to see others come to know Jesus. That we are going to, to be intentional about uh, praying for them, about going and, and sharing the gospel with them, caring for them. We have to have that intentionality. Again, we're only going to do that if we are convinced that there is an eternal, a, a deep and infinite satisfaction that comes with that. And we must also accept the urgency of the moment and labor accordingly. And then the third certainty that we see in this passage is in verses 37 and 38. This third certainty is that partnership eases the burden of this spiritual harvest. Look at me at those verses. It says, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps i sent you to reap that for which you did not labor others have labored and you have entered into their labor and so we saw in verse 35 jesus pointed to a, a proverbial saying and here in verse 37 he's going to point to a, a second proverbial saying he's going to say that one who sows or one sows and another reaps uh, the one who, who plants uh, may be different from the one who's going to harvest the crop in this spiritual harvest. Uh, and the one who plants and the one who harvests, they work in partnership. They work as a team, which is why they can both rejoice, as we saw in verse 36. They, they rejoice when, when the harvest comes because they both played a role. Uh, and Jesus sent his disciples into that harvest. Uh, verse 30, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Uh, There is a sending of Christ uh, later on in John's Gospel, uh, as we see in John, uh, the the Great Commission, uh, is that Jesus says, as I have been sent, I am now sending you. So if Jesus was sent to do the will of God the Father, to go and proclaim salvation in the name of Christ, what are we called to do? We are called to do the very same thing and to find our satisfaction and our joy in that. But Jesus sent his disciples to harvest to, to reap what they did not sow. And so uh, his disciples were entering into the labor of others. But then that, that question arises, well, well, who are those others that they are entering into the labor of? And I think what Jesus is speaking of here is the long line of Old Testament prophets culminating in John the Baptist. Uh, those prophets uh, sowed the work or the, the word of God. They're the ones who, who cast that seed uh, on the, the soil of Israel uh, and they laid that foundation. And now it's going to be the disciples who are going to reap the harvest, that salvation of souls. And the prophets had labored to plant the word and the disciples w- would harvest the crop. Uh, and here we have this concept that's also seen and stated clearly in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 by the apostle Paul. So you see, even the Apostle Paul points to this illustration of a harvest when it t- comes to uh, the church age and our, our proclamation of the gospel. And, and the beauty of these verses and the beauty of this picture is that, that there are going to be some who sow, that there are some going to be some who, who plant the seed, and there are going to be others who, who reap the harvest. But here's something to keep in mind, that Christ values both. That one is not necessarily greater than the other. We each have a role to play. Now, in, in the realm of athletics, there are, are different types of sports. Uh, there are individual sports and there are team sports. Uh, and track and field is one of those uh, sports that is, for the most part, there are some team events in the relay races, but for the most part, it's an individual sport. Uh, The the, the person who is going and high jumping or long jumping or throwing the discus or the javelin or or sprinting and running hurdles, whatever they're doing, they're competing against other individuals to win a prize, to win the goal. Uh, That's an individual sport, but team sports such as basketball. Now, it's a different concept. See, in team sports like basketball, there, there may be one or two really good players, all-stars you could call them, and there's maybe a couple of, of average players, and then there's others that you could call role players. All right, They, they serve a particular function on the team, uh, and, and they help in, in limited capacity. And uh, we need to begin to see and understand that evangelism is not an individual sport. Sometimes we think that way. We say, hey, this is just me competing against other people to see how many people we can win to Christ. It's like, well, no. Uh, evangelism is a team sport. Uh, evangelism is something that we partner in together uh, to see souls harvested. Uh, some of us will, will plant, others will, will harvest, uh, but we need to work together. And by working together, by partnering together in the proclamation of the gospel, the burden is eased. Uh, and then we, again, find our joy, our satisfaction, uh, and our peace in knowing, hey, this is the role that God has called me to fulfill, and I'm going to fulfill it. Uh, and within that, we have to then keep, begin to keep in mind. So if evangelism is a, is a team sport, what's my role? Right? Some of us uh, are evangelistic all-stars. Okay, some of you can, can handle uh, objections and, and hostile people with, with grace and winsomeness. I always point to uh, Ray Comfort. Anybody ever see any of his vis- videos? Uh, he's able to call people sinners with a smile and, and winsomely and, and talk down people who are angry right in his face. Like, he is an evangelistic all-star. Okay, others of us are, are average Evangelists. We, are, we are the average players. Yeah, I, I can answer some questions and I'm willing to have some conversations at times. Uh, but the things that Ray Comfort does intimidate me. Right? Some of us may be saying that. And then there are others that we just see that, hey, I'm, I'm a role player. Uh, that, that I can pray. Uh, I, I can you know, leave a gospel tract. I can uh, share a, uh, an article or, or a link to a sermon uh, with somebody else. We're role players, but no matter what our role is on the team, here's something to keep in mind. We are all called to grow. We are all called to to, to grow as communicators, to grow in our understanding of the scriptures and in our willingness to go and speak the truth of God to other people. So we are uh, whether you are an all star, uh, an average player or a role player, we all are called to pursue growth in this area of Evangelism and partnering together in this endeavor uh, and understanding that some will reap and others will sow uh, helps us to ease the burden of this harvest. It's not all on your shoulders. And there's a supernatural element here, uh, even as I read in Mark chapter 4, because it says uh, the kingdom of God is like a farmer, a sower who goes out to sow. And then what does he do, what does he do after the seed has been sown? He goes and sleeps. <laughs> and the crop grows up. He knows not how. And that's the Spirit of God working. As we proclaim the message and leave the results to God, God will save those whom He has called. And so we have to be certain of these truths that we see in this passage. We have to be certain that our greatest satisfaction in life can be found in uh, laboring in this spiritual harvest. And and we know that because that is exactly what Jesus says He finds His satisfaction in doing, in doing the will of God. Secondly, we find that uh, our that there is an urgency that drives us uh, to labor, to work in this harvest. And then third, that partnership eases the burden of this harvest. Now, it's not us alone doing this. And uh, to, to kind of, I guess, give a, I want to give a, a a greater picture of what I mean by saying, hey, we need to go out and labor in this harvest. I recently read a book, it's called Unlikely Converts uh, by Randy Newman. And in the book, he, he studies uh, so many different ways. uh, And he goes and interviews so many people uh, and asks them how they came to know Christ, how they came to faith in Jesus. Uh, It's it's a fascinating book with uh, many amazing stories of how people come to faith. And one of these stories is about a girl named Joni. Uh, And Joni, uh, her parents were ensnared in a cult for most of their lives. And through her first 17 years, Joni uh, thought that their religion was normal. Uh, and they went to something like a church, uh, but sat under these convoluted messages where uh, the leader had convinced his followers that, that he was the Messiah. Uh, and in this cult, uh, part of their practices was that the church leader uh, would arrange marriages. And actually, Joni's parents uh, met on their wedding day because the cult leader put them together. Uh, and uh, while they... Uh, while they had been married more than 20 years, uh, Joni uh, said, hey, my parents are together. But as she looked out over the, the landscape of this cult, she saw so many other horrible marriages. And as a 17-year-old girl, she's she's looking at, at her prospects and hearing her dad begin to talk about who he's going to set her up with in an arranged marriage. Uh, and she decides she's going to run away. Uh, And so she she runs away from that cold and out of that trouble, but she runs right into so many more troubles. Uh, As as a young lady, uh, she was uh, exploited sexually. She uh, fell into an an addiction to various drugs, and she moved from one temporary living mess to another, bouncing around. Somehow she got uh, into this prestigious college uh, and as she uh, moved into the dorms there, she said that was uh, the most uh, consistent and uh, level uh, living situation that she had ever had, living in the dorms. And those of you who'd ever lived in a college dorm room, that, that's pretty amazing. And it was there in the dorms where she met some Christians. And it was their friendliness towards her. She didn't quite know how to process Their friendliness prompted some deep, conflicted feelings within her because her life had been ruined by religion, utterly and completely. And she said that she had made a commitment that she would never be involved in any organized religion because of what she had grown up with. But since she was now enrolled at this uh, university, she had access to the, the school's counseling services. She recalls going and, and speaking with the counselor. But as she looks back, she says she, she had an a, even greater benefit from going and speaking with those new Christian friends that she had made in the dorms. And that those friends that she was able to, to speak with, to express her doubts, to ask her questions about the Christ, or their faith at that point in time, that they were so kind to her, so loving and compassionate. And they were willing to to have those late night conversations. There was a leader at the campus ministry uh, who really uh, took her under uh, her wing and and ministered to her and uh, w- was just there for her. And she says over over the course of of many many conversations, through through Bible studies, through uh, weekend retreat, through listening to, to sermons from a solid church, and then. Uh, Reflecting and, and writing in her own journal about uh, all that she was learning and all that she had experienced in her life, she, she saw a gradual path to how the Lord worked in her life and, and drew her to salvation. And, and the reason I tell that story is because, again, I want to give you a picture of really what it looks like to labor and toil in this spiritual harvest. Yes, there is, a, there is a place and a time for going out and doing open-air evangelism and proclaiming the gospel and handing out tracts. There is a place, and that is a, a good ministry. But, but most of us laboring in this harvest will sound like what I just described. We will be those Christian friends who come alongside somebody, who come alongside a friend, a co-worker, a family member, and we're there to, to listen to them. To answer questions they have about the Bible, to to look, to, to pray for them. And little by little, gradually, as we share the love of Christ to them, we come to that point of sharing the gospel, of sharing the good news. And for most of us, as we look at our own salvation story, I would bet that there were one or two people that came alongside us and they were gracious and compassionate. It, even when we, maybe we were hostile, and what what really stuck out uh, to me as I as I read uh, that you know that narrative about Joni, just how how similar it was to my own life. I won't get into my my testimony right now, but that was me. Very very similar situation growing up, and it was a family being intentional of bringing a college student into their home and letting me live with them. That's. That's what it looks like just to labor for this harvest. And those are all things that we can do. So when I say we need to begin to be intentional, I'm not saying you've you got to go and get a microphone and go stand on the corner over here on Fairview and Cherry uh, and, and, and do some open-air preaching. What I'm, what I'm saying is we need to be ready and willing to go and minister to our neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends. To be praying for them. That is what I mean. But when I speak of laboring for the harvest and we want to do that together as a church. Knowing that there will be some who will plant seeds and others who will who will harvest. Uh, and we are not competing with other churches in the Treasure Valley that are proclaiming the gospel. Understand that uh, there are others who have planted the gospel in all of you. Right. There's been so many of you who are California transplants, California refugees. Uh, And to a certain extent now, we are reaping the harvest of what others have planted in you, and you are continuing to grow. And we want to partner together to do that in others. And can we commit to doing that? Can we begin to be intentional about laboring for the harvest? And it begins with seeing, understanding, believing that our deepest and most profound satisfaction in life is by laboring, working in this spiritual harvest. There's no greater reward, no greater joy, no greater satisfaction that we can experience in life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to You praising Your sovereignty, praising Your plan of salvation. That, Lord, You have... Called us from before the foundation of the world, that you have sent your Son to die for us. That we have been forgiven through what he has done. What I pray that that message, the, just the, the clear and simple gospel message, would make a profound impact upon our hearts and our lives. All that you have done for us. Lord, as we reflect upon that, how can we do anything less than go and share that message with others? How can we go and do anything less than being prayerful and caring and concerning towards others when when that is how we ourselves came to know you? Lord, may we be willing. May we be intentional. May we be convinced that there is a greater and deeper satisfaction to be found in fulfilling your will in obeying you. May we be convinced of that. And then, Lord, may we feel just an urgency in our hearts that would drive us to being intentional with those around us. And, Lord, then may we labor together to share the gospel, to plant seeds, to harvest the crop. Lord, ultimately, we long to see lives changed and transformed. We long to see people come to faith, to see you glorified. And, oh, Lord, we long to experience the joy and the satisfaction that that brings. But, Lord, we lift all of these things up to you, asking that you would work in us and through us, to proclaim the gospel, that we would be faithful witnesses, faithful ambassadors. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.